Ludwig Katoa. Welcome Territory 3 community. Um, very excited to be bringing you another Territory 3 Academy webinar uh, with thanks to our sponsors, New Zealand Trade Enterprise, Amazon Web Services, uh, Bank of New Zealand, and of course, K1W1 Avenda Management, Jasmine Holdings. Um, very, very pleased to have Evan Kumak here with us today, uh, all the way from the USA. Evan and I have uh, toured the country in a Kiwi landing pad jam a few years ago and certainly tried to catch up pretty regularly in San Francisco. Um, fascinating transition for uh, a good Kiwi boy from, I think, the Kapiti Coast, but he'll tell you more about that later, um, to the world of Silicon Valley. And, uh, and now um, leading a very exciting company, Fun as CEO. So welcome, Evan. Good to see you, mate. Hey, good to see you, mate. How are you? Very, very well. Um, thought I'd just kick off for the crowd and just a, a little bit of housekeeping, folks. Most of you have been on one of these before, but if you want to ask a question, if you can direct them into the Zoom Q&A rather than the chat, and that just makes sure that we'll get through that at about the 30-minute time frame, and then we'll do another break for Q&A about 10 minutes before we finish um, at 11 o'clock NZT. So, um, yeah, fire those questions in. Um, there's lots to cover here. So, Evan, tell us a little bit about yourself. I see you've got your lovely dog sitting in the corner there, being very well behaved. Uh, yeah, so my name's Evan, like you mentioned. I'm CEO of a company called Finn, uh, which is F-I-N. Our domain name is Finn.com. We have... Uh, it was actually, I don't, you know, I don't take many recruiter calls, but when I saw the domain name, I was like, holy shit, these people have a three-letter domain name. So I actually uh, uh, took a call with them and the rest is, is history. But um, yeah, I'm CEO of Finn. I, I'm C Finn is a B2B SaaS company. You know, we can get into that uh, throughout the call, but we, um, we raised a, our, our Series A very soon after I joined in December of last year, $20 million US, so about $30 million New Zealand dollars, which... Uh, is is a is a is a normally a fairly significant a round, but I feel as though the financing is completely out of control right now. So, uh, you know, compared to a year ago, um, if it, the numbers are all very different. And uh, yeah, I'm here in, actually in Phoenix, Arizona, which is not where I live. I live in Lake Tahoe, North Lake Tahoe, California, about three hours from San Francisco. Been up there since the beginning of of, uh, of lockdown, and you know, prior to that, as you mentioned, I spent uh, ten years living in San Francisco worked for a company called Twilio that people may know. Twilio is not as big in APAC as it is in, in North America and Europe, I would say. Don't quote me on that. Uh, and it's essentially, a, 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 again, an, an enterprise technology company, one of the first um, real multi-tenant cloud developer platform companies. We were focused on uh, communications and providing communications primitives and tools through APIs in the cloud. And I joined there actually uh, around about the same stage, maybe a little earlier than where Finn is now and rode that out for 10 years. It was amazing. It was, it's one of the, you know, it's a once in a, once in a decade kind of company. Uh, I remember, you know, the first day when I realized that we were worth more on the, uh, on the stock exchange than Ford Motor Company and just sort of like trying to wrap my brain around that. Uh, but it was, it was certainly a, a wild ride and uh, ended up there as a general manager, actually started my own business unit there uh, a couple of years ago, but it was amazing. Very cool, very cool. And, you know, that um, product management journey that you've had uh, is one we've talked about a lot and one I'm passionate about getting back uh, more learnings into the New Zealand community. I mean, if you had a sort of, a, you know, a, a, a postage stamp list around product management today, 
versus where you want to see it or the key things? What would, what would those be? It's interesting. I, I, this is, um, so I, for folks on the call, I did the Kiwi landing pad uh, tour. I can't remember what it was called. The jams. It's, sales and marketing jams. The jams. So, yeah, the jams. And I was there speaking about product management. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I think I missed the mark on based on my assumptions, like coming out of having spent at that time about seven or eight years in uh, Silicon Valley um, was the difference between like being a product manager and product management. And I think I was coming at it from what does it mean to be a product manager, which is, I mean, it's a valid angle to come at it from, but I think like what I realized, you know, talking to a lot of people in New Zealand is actually the idea of having that role is, is quite, um, uh, I don't want to say novel, but it's, it comes quite late for a lot of companies. And actually what people were really curious about was just product management. Like, you know, as the CEO, how do I uh, ensure that I'm building the right product and, and these types of things. And um, yeah, it, it took me, it took me like a year until after that tour to realize like, oh yeah, that's where that disconnect was. Uh, but, um, you know, I think like in general product management, it, it means very different things based on the stage of your company. That's for sure. I think in the early stages, it's typically a CEO founder who has a vision for a product and is going to uh, work with an engineering team, which they may or may not be part of themselves. I'm talking strictly about you know, software here, but, um, work with that engineering team to, to bring that product to market and ensure that it um, sort of simultaneously delivers incremental customer value uh, while also um, staying true to that, to that vision uh, under, the, under the premise that um, there's some bigger prize than just incremental customer value in terms of sort of like addressable market unlock or whatever it is, if you can see that vision through to, through to fruition. Now, you know, as the company grows, you start actually hiring product managers and that is their job. And I think like different companies have different philosophies on that for sure. So at Twilio, we were very, um, I think good in the sense that uh, product managers had a ton of ownership. It was, uh, we didn't think of product management as necessarily like UX or uh, user research or, um, you know, spe writing specifications or whatever, you would do all those things, but you also had teams available to you that did those things. Your job really was uh, to ensure that whatever we were spending our time on as a company was going to deliver the most value for customers and in return deliver the most value to shareholders, basically, uh, and, and do so in a way where that was aligned with our vision. So it was very much like a business-centric role. Uh, you would find it, you would spend a lot of time, um, you know, writing thinking about and writing about uh, incremental revenue unlock and like how, where you're going to find new customers, how you're going to add, deliver additional value for existing customers, how you're going to strategically you know, build products that have um, strategic longevity in them and, and things like that. But, you know, there are other companies in particular consumer companies, for example, where product management might mean more nuts and bolts, um, user analysis, user research, uh, and, and that type of thing. So I think, I think honestly, it's, it's a hard discipline to talk about in that regard because it does come down a little bit to how an individual company thinks about it. Yeah, totally. And you hit the nail on the head there, um, even around, um, I think, less of your realisation and more of just where New Zealand is very different to uh, to the markets you're used to and that a uh, CEO is definitely, generally, you know, certainly for our earlier stage companies, still wearing that product hat to a certain degree. Um, but, you know, trying 
to allocate or work out where you know their strengths lie, moving more to the leadership as the company grows, and B, yeah, just um, you know, figuring out whether you're building something that actually solves the problem, right? Yeah, the way I think about that now, so I have you know obviously a product team now, my new company, and I think there's four or five people on that team, but um, the way I think about that now is that my job is to sort of own simultaneously the the vision of the company that is to say the impact that we want to have on the world and and sort of the the um probable ways in which we get there and then also uh the um the product thesis so at, at, a, at a higher level than sort of the uh roadmap it's really the product thesis that is to say like what are the mega macro trends that we're bidding on um you know how will we know if this is working uh, where should we be looking for signals that we need to change our strategic direction and, and so on and so forth. But uh, Andrew, who runs product is amazing. He has a group of unbelievable product managers. Honestly, they're much better at what they do than I could ever be. Um, and those, those folks are more specialized. You know, one, one of them knows a ton about data and ML. One of them knows a ton about user research and um, user interface design and that type of stuff. They're all very good generalists. Uh, but I think of increasingly of my role as being more about like the product thesis and making sure we're investing toward it and measuring our progress toward it, basically. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, a lot of folks have just come from a meeting actually where you know one of the key things in the New Zealand community at the moment is talent. Uh, obviously, it's always a key issue, but at the moment, there's a lot of our companies, a number of mine as well, that are just getting challenged by essentially just a, a demand for a relatively small resource around developers. I know folks would be interested in, you know, what you're seeing your side of the world and, and sort of where you see all that heading. Yeah, it's, it's, it's always been tough here. Um, it's gotten, I would say, simultaneously tougher on some vectors. So there are... Uh, the, the talent pool is probably a little smaller than it was. There's this whole notion of the great resignation and there's people who are uh, choosing not to take on traditional um, employment. I, I also personally think there's like this unraveling phenomena and this, this goes back to like where I talk about product, you're talking about product thesis. One of the macro trends that I'm sort of trying to keep an eye on in that regard is, um, is the idea that, uh, that people are uh, choosing um, to unbundle the notion of work from the notion of employment. There's, you know, like there are many, many more jobs now that you can do um, not where you're not paid for, for your time. You're, you're, you know, you're paid for your work. And, you know, that, that was sort of fairly strictly limited historically. And, and now there's a whole bunch, you know, a, a more, um, more jobs that fall into that category as different software platforms enable that to happen. Uh, and so I think like, yeah, generally there's a, there's a, there's a smaller talent pool on the flip side, you know, it's, it's, it's almost sounding a little bit cliche at this point, but it is still super relevant, which is, um, the, the, the distributed nature, like just the fact that every, like pretty much every company built in the last two years is distributed by default, which is, which actually has a pretty big impact. Yeah. Uh, and then all these other companies have had to go and figure out how to how to be distributed. And so I think uh, that does that does a couple of things, one of which is it obviously opens up a, a larger global talent pool. And I think like my general hypothesis for New Zealand would be that you might want to expect things to get harder in the sense that uh, if if we head further and further towards a global equilibrium on 
developer salary, it probably still raises the New Zealand salary. Uh, it, you know, like, I mean, I don't know if you've done any contracting recently in like parts of the world that you consider to be like historically considered to be inexpensive. They're fucking expensive. Like getting developers in like the Ukraine and yeah. like everywhere, it's just so expensive. And so, you know, I know that the prices in New Zealand uh, have have gone up a lot, um, but I think it probably continues to to go up a little bit. It certainly doesn't crash. And you know, and then simultaneously with that, you have just tons of companies with massive developer demand all of a sudden, like uh, companies that weren't traditionally software companies now have to become software companies very quickly because their product is being delivered uh, in such a way that has changed very dramatically. And, um, and so the demand for developers just, just keeps going up and up and up basically. And so flipping to your CEO hat for Finn, how, uh, how are you and your company actually managing that, that challenge? Yeah, you know, like we grew this year from uh, about 10 people to about 50. So obviously we've added a lot of people uh, and, you know, relative to our size, it's still not that many people, but um, I'm really proud of the hiring we've done. I mean, I don't want to, I think, you know, we, we hired a lot from network, which which is important. Like, you know, we, we came together to build this company coming from a bunch of other different, more established, larger companies. And I think we're able to ride maybe the great resignation trend a little bit to our favor to bring people over from these bigger companies. Yeah. But it does pose a, um, it does pose a little bit of a dilemma in my mind about, okay, well next year, if we want to grow by the same amount, which we we're not going to grow 250 people next year, but you know, if we wanted to grow by the same, the same net number, um, you know, how would we do that? And so one of the things that I have explored is, you know, hiring a general manager in New Zealand and saying, Hey, here's some money, go hire, 10 or 15 engineers. Um, but to your point, like almost everyone I've talked to has said, it's not about the money. It's just not, there's, you just won't find the people. And, um, you know, I think that's interesting. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think we will explore purely distributed, fully global teams. I think we'll explore uh, geographic pods in different markets where they are time zone bound to a certain extent, but at least all of the daily collaborators are on the same time zone. And I think we'll continue to explore um, under maybe like, you know, certain markets in the US that historically weren't big uh, centers for R&D. Yeah, no, it makes yeah. sense. And it's definitely an ongoing conversation. So flipping yeah. over to, um, to the human Stop. side of things, mate, um, you know, moving from product manager to CEO, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear your thoughts around the, the challenges with that, the things that are giving you the buzz maybe the things that you're excited about that you didn't think you were going to be excited about. I mean, it's a, it's a great move. What, um, what are your thoughts around product management, you know, general manager to CEO? Good question. I mean, I think, I think the one thing that I've enjoyed the most probably is the fact that I have, I spend a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with uh, all of my functional leaders. So like, um, you know, today I spent just so far today, it's, it's, it's two o'clock, but I already spent, you know, an hour with our CFO. I spent an hour with our head of HR. I spent a, uh, an hour with our head of sales. I have another one of these later. So it's like, I really like actually trying to drive the business through other people who are coming into their, um, into their uh, leadership, um, you know, finding themselves in, at the same time in, in, in their leadership roles. I actually find that like really satisfying. It's kind of difficult because you have 
many orders of misdirection, right? So there's, there's a, there's, you're trying to help someone to manage someone who's managing people or whatever. And it can, it can be, um, there's, there's room for, for lossiness there, but it also forces you to, at least in my mind, um, forces me to think a lot about measuring by outcomes and measuring by incentives and completely let go of the idea of micromanaging. Not that I ever would have described myself as a micromanager, but there are many things that I would look at now if I was speaking to myself five years ago and just be like, dude, don't like, why are you wasting your time on that? Just, you know, make that someone else's opportunity to show that, to show their ability. Like just, you know, um, so I, you know, I'm always constantly in the habit of um, asking people on my team, like, Hey, if I gave you another hundred grand a month, what would you give me? And, you know, as opposed to like trying to drive um, very specific uh, as opposed to trying to drive very specific um, processes, behaviors, you know, strategic decisions, roadmap items, just sort of like allowing, first of all, letting that person do the, do the work, honestly, yeah. but also like then that, you know, being very fair about what's the expectation of the outcome and then trying to be really fair about holding people accountable negatively and, and, and rewarding positively, basically. Uh, I think this is really top of mind for me recently because it comes back to remote work and distributed work a lot. And that comes back to our product. Like our, you know, our product is used by um, mostly by distributed teams to, to actually understand uh, how they're doing work across as a team or as an organization across different SaaS applications that they use all day. And, um, and so I, and, and I really think that like, there's a lot of, even if you only go back 10 years or, or less, there's a lot of stuff in management science or in the way that people were managing that are like blunt proxies for what they're actually trying to get at, right? Like the fact that someone is in the office from eight till five is an incredibly blunt object of like incredibly blunt metric for how much value that person is adding to the company. Yeah. But if it's good enough, it's good enough. Now, the problem is all of us, you know, especially if you are an established company and you have other moats around your company, right? You have distribution channels, you have all these other things set up. So you don't actually really need to be um, for everyone to be firing on all cylinders all the time, but you can't do it anymore. And so it's almost like we're now a bunch of uh, companies and particularly like more historic companies are, will feel pressure to behave the way that the best performing companies in the world have been doing it for a while. Um, which is like very output-based uh, measurement, very clear goals, very clear expectations, clear career letters, all that kind of stuff. Like everything has to be super clear. It's like, if I'm going to push you hard, it has to be really clear what you get out of it if, if we're successful. Um, and it has to be really clear what it is that you're actually trying to do. And yeah, so this is on my mind a lot recently. I think A, because of distributed work and B, because you know, people talk a lot right now about like the four-hour work week and stuff like that. Sorry, four-day work week. <laughs> Um, well, I, I guess like my point is to a certain extent, like four days could be like a lot, like a lot more than a certain person maybe needs to put in if they're really good at what they do. And, yeah. you know, but then someone else may like, that would be like my worst nightmare. I, like I, 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 I really like working and find it like, you know, I mean, certain aspects of it, <laughs> uh, but find it pretty satisfying. And so, you know, um, I think like even just the idea of talking about the four day work week, you're still implying that you um, are maintaining this, this system of 
basically incredibly flawed performance management that maps time to output. Yeah. There are exceptions. And this is where I start to get like morally hung up on it, which is like, well, what do you do if you work at a Starbucks? Like the, the, you, like the value of you being there behind the counter is the value you're providing, right? And so does that start to, um, especially like in certain economies, I might be like rat holing now, but this is what I've been thinking about a lot. So you, I mentioned like say the Ukraine before, right? Big developer center. So if global developer salaries head towards equilibrium and all of a sudden you have people in Kiev that are making a lot of money, like by a global standard, they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars in a, in a, in a premium currency, Euro or USD, whatever. How does that translate to someone who is working in the service economy in Kiev, right? Like there's going to be um, at best a delay and at worst a mess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it bears thinking about, and arguably we've already seen a relatively uh, recent sort of shift like this in India, right? Um, yeah. And sort of experienced this firsthand with building a performance management company there and just literally seeing the salary inputs uh, just, yeah. just you know, double, triple in, in five years in terms of what people were getting paid. And it happened, you know, very quickly and caused all sorts of challenges. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, global geopolitics aside, I guess, um, you know, I think like there's a, uh, it, it, there's a, um, so Stack Overflow released their global developer survey yesterday. They do it every year. It's a great read. But, you know, you will very clearly see in there that there's two things people care about. They care about how much they get paid and they care about how much freedom they have in their job. Everything yeah. else, there's other stuff, but like, you know, people care about the stack they get to work with and there's some, some esoteric stuff in there. But generally speaking, you know, if you're, um, if you're not going to pay what Facebook pays, I think the next best, and, and you're not, um, I think the next best lever that you have is how do you give people freedom? And in my mind, the best lever for giving people freedom is, uh, is, is building a culture that is very, very relentless about uh, measuring outcomes and, 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 or, or inputs, but at least just being based around units of work and units of contribution, units of value, not, not necessarily units of time. Uh, and that's, I think, like how you uh, compete, basically, uh, in the years to come. Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, it, it 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 is a deep subject, but I think it's one worth you know every founder thinking about, especially going global, because you're going to you know you're going to run smack bang into it. Either it's coming down here, some of the of the uh, of the change, or uh, you're heading into it. And I, I think you know the problem we have in New Zealand, also you know very well documented statistically, is productivity, which is kind of what we've been talking about, you know, in various different ways in the last five minutes. Um, and a lot of that, you know, yeah, it's outcome based, but it's also about keeping well. I think, and I'm, you know, always ask this question of folks like, you know, there's there's freedom, but then there's also kind of, you know, the ability to to, to care for yourself and keep yourself in, in peak condition to provide those outcomes or, or do those hours of work. Any thoughts around that? You mean more like for myself or for like what I would try to um, breed in a in an organization? I, I give I give everyone the freedom to tackle it whichever way they. Both are very important, but um, everyone likes to answer it differently. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, you know, actually, this would have been a good answer to your previous question as well about like going coming into a CEO role and what's really fundamentally different about it. Actually, you know, I, I tend not to think through this lens a lot, but but if I was being really deeply honest and personal about it, I'd probably say the biggest difference is the athleticism. It is, uh, 
you know, I've been in roles before where, so like even, even as a general manager to a certain extent, like if my, if my team launched a great product once a year, there was, there was, you know, five or six other business units to, to, to fill in the other, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, and then of course, like we were a growth BU and there was others that were, you know, driving revenue, but weren't growing and so on and so forth. So there's, there's, you know, you just sort of things balance out. Um, but I have been in roles where you can get by or even succeed. Sales is one of these roles. And I think defensively, it should be one of these roles where you can survive and thrive by through infrequent acts of extraordinary accomplishment, basically, right? It's like, if I close a massive deal every quarter, I'm, I'm good. And, um, and I think the biggest change for me, honestly, coming to the CEO role is like, it just doesn't work. It's, there's always someone who needs your attention. There's always something that's going to get dropped on the floor. There's always, and so it's just, it's just a very athletic feeling thing. And uh, I wasn't ready for it, honestly. And I got like a bit, I think it got me a bit depressed at first because, because I just knew I wasn't living up to it. Like I just knew I wasn't yeah. doing it. And, um, and I think, you know, at a certain point it just became real enough where I was like, well, dude, you have to fucking do it. So, you know, I just, I just worked with myself to, to, to figure it out. And, you know, a lot of that I think is, is wellness stuff. I'm, I'm definitely much more, um, I wouldn't say I like am super anal about like diet and stuff like that. I definitely exercise a lot, but that's really more cause I enjoy it, but I'm, I'm much more anal about uh, sleep than ever before. Like this, this notion that, you can work a 70 or 80 hour week is, is horseshit. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. Nobody, you, you can, uh, you can be at work for 70 hours a week. I would, I would believe that. But like, if you actually want to be doing high leverage activity and do it week over week over week, uh, which you need to do 52 weeks a year, essentially, you need to be sleeping a lot. And um, yeah, every morning needs to feel like a new morning, not, not an extension of the previous evening. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great advice. Hey, we're going to take uh, the questions that we've got here. Um, there's three here. I'll just guide you through them. Um, so a uh, question from Max. G'day, Max. Finn hires remote, but in the US only. What is the rationale for limiting it? Uh, so actually that's changing. We, um, like I said, when I came in uh, earlier this year, um, there was there was not a lot of anything. So we had a small, small handful of engineers and we had, um, you know, we didn't have like a dedicated sales team. We didn't have product management. We didn't have a lot of things. We didn't have designers. We didn't have brand. And so I think our, uh, our strategy for hiring for this year was very much focused around um, speed over uh, other, you know, you might say that like your vectors for thinking about hiring is like speed, quality and cost. And there's probably other things as well, but those might be your three major. And for us, it was like, we just need to hire very fast. And so all of us have quite a bit of experience hiring in the US and we know how to manage people in the US and we had a legal entity in the US. And it's, you know, the notion that like, let's go and do something, uh, even though we know it's the right thing to do, the notion of like going in and um, yak shaving essentially like was, was, was undesirable. But uh, we actually have our first, uh, Canadian employee we're going really uh, exotic on this one starting uh, in the next couple of weeks and then I think from there on the cat's kind of out of the bag because in order to do that we have to um, you know you go from zero to one in terms of 
not using US payroll services, not using US benefit services and all this kind of stuff. And so it becomes like relatively, uh, yeah, relatively simple, basically. Yeah, cool. And uh, this question from Simon, um, sort of driven from the same area as, as Max, actually checking out Finn's website and just complimenting you on your About Us pages and talking about top people is normally the thing, but you featured a new employee. I think that um, that is a great question. How else do you actually inspire excellence in each other? Um, yeah, so Shandrika is on that page. She's awesome. I mean, like, and, and I think uh, she's just sort of exemplary of someone who came in like relatively junior. She, she's had an engineering role before, but not at a tech company. And, um, you know, she's just she's crushing it. Super curious, super hardworking and um, super good communicator. So it, it was it was a sort of a no brainer there. I'd love to have like more profiles up. But honestly, we only built our website like two months ago. And right now, like there are... Um, there are large swaths of it which are no good so like we will come back to the about us at some point but uh right now it's like yeah when your product page is is uh is suffering you probably want to work on that first uh to a certain extent um what heaps to do in terms of um inspiring excellence i think like the 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 only so so this actually comes from linkedin so our sales leader came over from LinkedIn and, um, you know, we had a whole conversation about like what our different values should be as a company and, and our rituals. And one that came up a lot was some version of do really good work or something like that, you know, take pride or, you know, there's like all these various incarnations of this theme, have high standards for one another. And um, his rationale on this was that, you know, they, they circled around a few things at LinkedIn and landed on Inspire Excellence because, it puts the impetus on you as a leader and a manager to actually work hard basically and sort of like set the set the pace uh, so i i think um yeah this is one that's super important for me where i feel i actually feel very comfortable pushing people hard if i'm no i'm pushing myself hard as well if i'm not pushing myself hard i get deeply uncomfortable pushing people hard I feel like a very, like very much like an imposter and like everyone knows it and can see it. And uh, it, it makes me like very, very uncomfortable. And so, uh, and I notice it like not just, like I notice that on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis, I can feel it creeping up. Um, and so I think the notion of Inspire Excellence is really just a message to to everyone in the company, but 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 especially maybe also to leaders, which is to say like expect excellence, but the way you get it is by demonstrating it. And if you're demonstrating it and other people aren't mirroring it back to you, then you have a reasonable grounds from which to say like, Hey, I think we have a problem here. But if you're not, if you're not putting it out into the ecosystem and you're expecting it back, you're just going to breed a lot of resentment. You're probably not going to get a great result either. Um, but plus like, it's just the right thing to do. Like, yeah, it's a great answer. And I mean, I was going to ask you a deeper question around culture, but I think, you know, to me anyway, and, and feel free community on the, uh, on the zoom here as well, if you've got any different uh, aspects of that so important, but um, yeah, it's, it's sort of turning those truisms into something that actually fits the company and that you can demonstrate every day. Right. So I've been thinking a lot about this as well. It's funny. Like most companies have like a set of values or whatever. And, um, uh, 
and they just like hang on the wall or or whatever it is. And Twilio like did a, a, a I thought a, re- a really amazing job of whenever you were in a meeting and there was a decision to be made or you're arguing about something, whatever it was, someone would quote one of these values because they essentially like memes. They were like so memorable and so like it was so like clear how to to, to turn them into action um, that they just would come up all the time. And um, it's funny, like, you know, I was, I was talking to my team last week about like what I expect from them, a sort of an exercise. And one of the things I, I, I actually quoted from someone else and I, and I said, I expect you to be chronically discontent with the state of your business and the state of the company. Right. And everyone was like, well, that's a bit negative. Like, you know, we shouldn't put that in because we're writing a document. Like that's a bit strong. Like, you know, it's a bit harsh, whatever. So I think we reworded it to sort of, um, I kind of, my, this is exactly my point. I can't remember what we reworded it to. Something Lovely. like perpetually unsatisfied or some, some, some crap, some, you know, watered down, whatever. And anyway, since that meeting, I've heard the term chronically discontent like 10 times. And I'm like, okay, that's it. We're keeping, you know, we're keeping like certain things just uh, stick. And, and I think when you, when you identify those things, it's worth codifying them. We also have, you know, other values where I'm sort of like, we should probably just ditch this because no one ever talks about it. Like, yes, it's the right thing to do, but if, if it's not memeified and you're not throwing it at each other all the time, like, does it really add any value? Yeah, I think it's so important. It's so important for customers too, right? I remember my first business, Sonar 6, with Mike Carden and, and Mark Kelly, and we, we ended up with a tagline, you know, people want us to be the premium HR solution or this and that. And every CEO I talked to explaining within five minutes what their performance review process was like just said it sucked, and they literally said that. And so we ended up with performance reviews that don't suck, um, literally because the other stuff just, you know, just went into meanville, right? Yeah, it's a very important point, authenticity. Um, Glenn Lee has got a question. He's uh, impressed with your points about sleep. Uh, how does a CEO live a balanced life, especially considering the demands of the job? Great question. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm, I probably differ from some people here where I'm not looking for a balanced life right now. I'm looking to not be thinking about work-life balance in some number of years, basically. So I'm, I'm like, I'm not suggesting everyone should have that outlook on life, but I am perfectly happy sprinting as fast as I can for a short amount of time. Um, you know, not a, not a short amount of time, but you know, some amount of time um, in order to set myself up for a more leveraged situation later. So I don't know that everyone would look at my life and say that it's the most balanced thing in the world. Um, but at the same time, I, I, you know, we have leaders on the team that are, uh, you know, very staunchly um, protective of their family time and like all that kind of stuff. And I think in general, like it's, everyone's very supportive. Like as long as, as long as the work is getting done and, and the goals are ambitious enough and they're being hit with some amount of reliability, I think it really, you know, for the most part, I think you know, we just try to be flexible and most people put time on their calendar just every day for family time, whatever it is. And you just know not to schedule over it. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't do any of that. Great answer because it's the, the answer that's actually true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But again, it's not, not the like one that a lot of CEOs think they have to tell. Yeah. It's not like I feel any pressure to do that. It's just sort of, it just makes sense. I think if you can get into, I mean, software is, software is the greatest industry that's ever existed from a, from a financial perspective in terms of 
you know, no unit cost, no cost of reproduction, basically 100% margin and global audiences. So if someone gives you a seat with a legitimate opportunity at that industry, I think you take it basically is, is kind of my, my, my take on it. But again, a lot of people are uh, very successful in software and much more successful than, than I am taking a very different approach. So, Yeah, no, very cool. Um, question from Richard Chu. Good day, Chewy. Now, you've, you've asked the question I was hoping someone could ask because I'm sure a lot of you on this uh, Zoom are thinking about it. Uh, great journey, Evan. Can you tell us more about your cap raising process uh, from start yeah, to Yeah, I, ca I, I can, but it's super, super non-instructive. Like, uh, so... Um, <laughs> It's like it would. It's it's probably not a lot of value in me talking about it. It was, um, our, so for everyone's sake, like our company was started by not me. It was started by Sam Lesson, who's the first product leader at Facebook, and he's a general partner at Slow Ventures, very successful investor, and a guy called Andrew Cortina, who started um, Venmo, which is kind of the de facto peer-to-peer -peer payments app in the U.S. And they actually were trying to build a consumer product. They ended up building some back-end tooling that they were very enamored by and were sort of like, we should sell this. So they pivoted the company and, um, and recapped essentially and, and just sort of started fresh. And that's when the search for B2B enterprise software CEO and, and other leaders started. Um, at that time, the product was overperforming in terms of the amount of revenue that it was driving versus the amount of money that we had raised as a company since the pivot um and so it actually was a relatively easy fundraising process uh it didn't hurt that kotu was the company that recruited me to run the company so it was almost like it created sort of like a contingency where it was like okay well you're telling me you want to hire people to run this company so you can invest in it so you know that that creates a very different dynamic obviously um yeah, I think like from what I see in the, you know, but I, but I guess on the flip side, I do do a lot of early stage investing. And, you know, I think what I see right now is that everything is still insanely frothy, uh, crazy valuations at very early stages, um, pretty fast closes with very little diligence, which I think is being driven by Tiger and a few other companies that have taken a sort of limited diligence model. And that's, that's um, trickling down through, through all the deals. And, um, but I, 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 you know, I don't know that it's gotten a lot easier to raise at later stages. Later stages are much more rational and always have been that, you know, typically based on multiples of revenue and things like that. Whereas, you know, early stages, early deals are based on vision and, and um, you know, what we see this could be in the future. And so they tend to have a little bit more margin for exuberance, if you will. Um, but yeah, I mean, my, my fundraise was, was pretty easy, honestly. I, I, I don't want to say that. It's, not, it's never easy. There's tons of logistics. There's tons of whatever. But it was like, the, at least my timing coming in, um, it was, it was uh, not, not too difficult. It was mostly about sort of, here's our vision for the industry. Here's why we're different. Um, here's our success so far. And, you know, we just were very fortunate to have logos like, uh, Airbnb and Coinbase and like these very leading um, brands that were able to use as reference customers. And I think the whole story came together pretty as in a pretty strong, um, pretty strong outcome. Yeah. Well, I mean, the gem I think from that um, is really that, you know, your company was overperforming based on the amount of money invested. Right. So, you know, that's really, yeah, because they've been building this product for five years under a different 
completely different set of assumptions. So it was yeah. a backend tool, but it had had through that time, like many years of R and D um, input into it. And then, you know, uh, pivoted the company, bring on a few big customers. And all of a sudden it's like, you're out raising an A round, but you have logos in your base that you wouldn't normally see until a much later stage of, of company. And so, yeah, I mean, any, any time, you know, there, there's, there's magic numbers that investors look at you, the, the, the one that you hear all the time in SaaS in particular, I'm sure you're familiar with this, John, is like triple, triple, double, double, double. And as long as you can go like one, three, nine, 18, 36, 72, like that basically means that you're set up to proactively IPO at hundred. I'm talking about like uh, annual recurring revenue. And so like, if you can, if you can hit on that sequence at the beginning, um, the amount of detail that needs financial detail, at least that needs to go into a pitch is um, lessened. Yeah. Because people are pattern matching on that, on that uh, triple, triple, double, double, double. Yeah, yeah, we see that a lot. Uh, quick one there from AB. Any tips on buying uh, your three-liter domain? Um, I can acquire the company. You know, <laughs> we get structured deal. But uh, other than that, I, I don't, know, I don't, know, I don't think that one's going to work. I like the other question though, if we have time. Yeah, of course, you can read it there. Uh, so how do you strike a balance between cash cow product revenue streams and growth streams? This is referring, I think, to um, my comments about my previous company where I was not necessarily the decision maker on that stuff. We, you know, be invest, it would be funded from the corporate level um, and we would just receive envelopes uh, of money, not literal envelopes, but uh, <laughs> financial envelopes. So uh, I think it's a, that's a question that is... Um, uh, very perennial, probably, and probably also very relevant, not just in software, but in all businesses. And um, I think, like, honestly, it's kind of a business schooly answer. But at a certain point, it comes down to like capital deployment. You're just trying to deploy capital in ways that make more money than other ways you could deploy the same capital. And so, yeah. now, granted, like, once a uh, once the money is inside a company, it's very unlikely you're going to deploy capital outside of the company. Although Salesforce, for example, has a venture fund and they deploy capital outside the company. So for them, it might make sense to, um, to invest in, in a startup rather than trying to build it themselves. Uh, and so, you know, I, but I think that's, that's the general um, principle. However, I do think like there, there's a few more nuances to that. One is, you know, what can you build that leverages what you've already built in such a way where you don't have to be as good at everyone else as all the other things. So I mean that specifically in terms of new product development. If you think about building a new product, you have to assume that there's some other company out there that is dedicated to that product, that is just building a product like that. And they are probably better than you and at least further along than you uh, at 95% of that, of building that product you need to have the insight as to why it is that the 5% that you're going to do differently is uniquely unlocked by what you've already done. And that, that's like, generally speaking, um, that is a clue uh, that the capital allocation is, is appropriate, right? Because you're taking value, you're taking latent value in something you've already built um, and applying it to something, uh, to some net new thing. So I, I think like that, that's, a, that's a pretty good rubric. And then other than that, honestly, I think a lot of it is just, guessing, seeing where the market's going. I actually think a much more interesting um, conundrum is like, you know, acquiring companies versus building products. That's like, 
something where you look at a company like Salesforce and it's just like an acquisition engine because they know how to sell so well that they can just go and buy all these little companies and turn them into massive businesses. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in terms of your growth businesses versus your new businesses, it just comes down to model it out over the next five years and figure out like how much you're willing to spend on, on each because your, your, your base business is probably going to give you better ROI in the short term and your growth business is going to give you um, less guaranteed but higher ROI on a longer term. And so just model it out and see what you can stomach and you know, figure out like uh, whether you're going to have new capital coming in as well. Um, and yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough one. That's kind of a business school problem, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, it's cool. Now, uh, Luke, I know you've got a question now. I'll have that one I promise made as the first one uh, when we break about 10 minutes before the close. But um, I always get to ask one of my own questions because I'm doing the questions. Um, and I'm just intrigued about Finn and, yeah. you know, a couple of elements. One, kind of what I'm hearing, a pivot around an original thesis to something new that really, you know, sounded clearly like it's got a lot more um, addressable market, a lot more growth opportunity, but also just in terms of what you do, um, I love your thoughts on sort of the categories that are evolving above, you know, what starts out as individual solutions. And then suddenly there's a problem to solve by aggregating or bringing that stuff together, which I'm just fascinated about as a, as a new opportunity. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, in some ways that's like kind of my, the fact that I've had that. Yeah. We'll get to that, but that was part of my decision-making to come to this company. So, um, you know, in terms of the pivot, I think, to say that we have a bigger TAM or, or bigger you know, growth opportunity is probably, um, it, it, it's not that it's wrong, but the original idea had a gigantic TAM. I mean, it was a consumer product, like essentially a digital assistant type product like Alexa, but where you have machines triaging problems and then assigning them to humans um, when they become too difficult or whatever. And so you could say, you know, Finn, book me a flight from San Francisco to New York and I, I don't want more than one layover and I don't want to spend more than 500 bucks, right? And by the time that gets to someone's desk, it's kind of decomposed and they just solve it and, and so on and so forth. And so you can imagine how our tool was built um, when you had 600 people sitting around doing tasks like that. The, so it's a, pretty, it's a pretty big TAM. It's, it's just a consumer product. And consumer products are, at least in my mind, because I'm not a consumer person, they're very fickle. And you either get it right or you get it wrong. And if you get it right, you make boundless piles of cash right and if you get it wrong which you do more often than not you really get nothing because um it's not worth running it so yeah there's not not many small business i, I would say small business consumer technology products let's put it that way they're, they're, they're either blow up or you shut it down because it's not you know move on to the next thing better use of your time yeah um so it's just a very different it's a very different um, business problem whereas you know b2b SaaS, uh more iterative more formulaic, more based on listening to customers, more more based on quarter to quarter growth, as opposed to gigantic explosive growth that that might happen in concentrated periods. Um, so much more of my speed. I understand the business that business type of business a lot better. Uh, you mentioned you know the the, net, the 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 fact that Finn kind of works across SaaS applications or, or or kind of pulls things together and and. It is a really interesting space right now. So a company called Workado just raised a lot of money. They do kind of uh, kind of like Zapier sort of, but it's workflow integration. So pulling from different systems to complete workflows. I don't actually, honestly, I don't know their product that well, but they're called Workado. They raise a lot of money. 
Uh, and um, there's a lot happening here. So I think the, the macro that like is interesting to me is that enterprise software used to be incredibly hard to sell. If you go back to like 1978 or whatever with SAP, or you, you know, come slightly, maybe slightly more forward into the 90s, it was like, we are a Microsoft shop. We buy our software from Microsoft, right? And, and everything you use is from Microsoft. And that's, uh, that's how it was. And then all these different macros come together. You have cloud computing, you have advances in the browser and advances in software development in general and testing and all these dev tools and like all this stuff just comes together and all of, and then combine that with like Stripe and how easy it is to take global credit card payments and like all this stuff, Zendesk, you know, do support, whatever. And it just means that all of a sudden you can have a, a viable B2B software product with five people building it. And that just wouldn't, that just would never have been the case. You might've been able to build some utility and sell it through, right? Like I'm going to build a utility. I'm going to have SAP sell it for me to their customers because it works with SAP. But in yeah. general, you weren't going to like just get straight into some company. And now what you have is a, at least over the last 10 years, a, um, an unbundling of these core enterprise applications. So instead of having uh, just a CRM, you know, you do have your CRM, which is your system of record. You also have your CDP, your customer data platform. You have your um, gong or whatever you're using for like your sales training. You have, you know, these, there's, I think the average enterprise has something like, according to Okta, about 130 SaaS applications that they use. And so you end up with like these best of breed applications across the enterprise. Um, and that just creates a new and novel and equally massive headache, which is, uh, how do you manage all of them? How do you know that they're being used, that they're not shelfware? Um, how do you sort of make sure that they're secure, that, they're, that people aren't leaking data out of places here and there? Uh, so there's all these like different challenges that I think arise from the fact that you unbundle. I still think unbundling is better net net than, than monolithic software that's provided by monolithic vendors. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, there's a, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, in, in the idea of how do I help a company to, to navigate this like crazy space that we've basically all entered ourselves into. Yeah, yeah, and it's just growing, you know, by the day, right? And, and, and also customer services suffering because of all this disparity. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, it's ironic in a sense that like a lot of the category now in SaaS is like CX, because so many CX tools, right? And um, great, there should be like, see, like you know, especially, uh, I, that was one of the first things I noticed moving to the US is you just deal with really big companies. And they're, you know, the first time I had to deal with AT&T or something, I was like, this is awful. You know, this is horrible. And so I think like the creation of these CX tools is great, allows more contextual customer interaction. But yeah, you, you, uh, you get 10 of them and then what have you done to your CX? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Well, we've all experienced it ourselves on the, uh, on the consumer end. Pretty frustrating. Um, we've, mate, we've only got like nine minutes to go. So I'm going to jump to Luke's question. And folks, if you've got any other questions, we're, uh, we're coming down the final straight. So it's your last chance to fire them out. Uh, Luke, always the opportunist, is asking what kinds of companies do you invest in, uh, stage, industry, location, et cetera? Yeah, so I, I think like stage is the only one that's easy to answer, which is seed. Um, it's it's very expensive to to try and invest in companies post seed unless you're an institution. So um, you know, seed investing uh, checks up you know sort of between two hundred and fifty and a million, and 
Um, uh, it's not personal money, by the way, or not always. Not always. Um, and, uh, you know, location, don't care. I actually, personally, my personal thesis, and this is going to sound, uh, I don't want it to sound rude to, to people that are probably not on this call, but I actually really like first world English speaking markets outside the US. So I really like New Zealand, Australia, uh, the UK, <clears throat> Ireland, um, just the ease of doing business, the familiarity of the, of the, you know, meeting the founders and understanding whether I'm, whether I gel with them or not. Um, but also I think those markets are just really underserved for capital, um, compared to, uh, you know, the, the, the East and West coast of the U S and, um, so I like those locations and then segments like I, I, um, you know, I really only think about B2B because that's just what I know, but increasingly I'm kind of thinking that maybe that's not what I want to be doing. Um, consumer stuff is super interesting. It's just, uh, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of consumed with B2B all day at work. So maybe, maybe, maybe I would consider other things, but, um, actually I really like IOT industrial IOT. I really like anything that takes a real world process based on estimation and turns it into a process based on knowledge and accuracy. Um, so like, for example, I invested in a company uh, here in the States called Pulsa, P-U-L-S-A. They sell software and hardware that enables um, gas distributors essentially to massively reduce the amount of trucks that they're putting on the road because instead of going to fill all the restaurants on a Wednesday, you go out every day, but you only go to the places that actually need it, right? And there's all these problems across the economy everywhere. And, um, you know, you just don't see them until you start thinking about them. But I do think there's going to be like quite a bit of innovation in, um, in IoT. But, but I, you know, not, not uh, yeah, someone said traveling salesman problem. Exactly. It's, you don't need it anymore, though. Like that was, again, talk about like crude proxies for, for measuring things. Like that, my trash gets collected on a Wednesday. Why? Because that was like, the best guess as to how often everyone would fill up their trash can. Sorry, rubbish bin. Um, and uh, <laughs> we'll <go sometime>. uh, <laughs> so, you know, but like there's all these proxies for, for data and for accuracy exist all across the economy. So I really like that sector, but uh, you know, I, I do this with a few friends. We'll, we'll look at anything really. So um, you can actually email, uh, email me. It's just my first name at my last name.com, Evan at kumek.com. And uh, I'd be happy to talk about it. Yeah, well, there you go, Luke. Because uh, second question, ever the opportunist. And I will say my one caveat, well, not caveat, but my one concern about investing in New Zealand companies is, um, and correct me when I'm wrong, John, but a lot of the companies I talk to or have talked to um, have a tendency to drag things out. I'd rather invest in something and then have it fail and then invest in your next thing. Um, and, and I worry that there's a, uh, some sort of external pressure, I don't know what it is, that, that creates this environment where people will nurse ideas. I think in general, software ideas tend to work or not work. That's not always true. But like in general, um, you know, and companies do pivot, but when they pivot, you'd say, well, that's a new software idea. And then that, that new software idea tends to work or not work. And it's just such a magical industry with such insane economics that my personal philosophy is like, find something that works and just get behind it and get by, like, you know, and um, if you find something that is not clearly working, you could be working on something that is working because there's just so much opportunity. There's so much white space. There's so many things that are still done in such incredibly old fashioned ways that are going to be revolutionized by the cloud and by software. 
that it's like, let's move on, let's try something else um, and let's go for big multiples. Yeah, I think that's great advice and I think something really to reflect on, not necessarily for the people on this call in New Zealand, but the, the New Zealand ecosystem is, uh, you know, your most precious asset is time, right? So working on something that just isn't showing those signs and just having the courage to, to flip around and, and look at something else, there's plenty of stuff to solve. Infinite stuff. Like especially once you start considering, I don't know, like if you go outside of consumer and go outside of enterprise and you start looking at industrial and like there's just like there's there's a reason it's hard to hire engineers, right? There's there's not enough people building uh, building software for. Uh, yeah. You're bringing the star for the last for the last couple of minutes, mate. Hey. Um, Kevin, it's been great to chat to you. We're, we're rolling up to like, you know, three minutes left, I guess. Um, well, there's one more question here that's slipped in, is it? Um, or oh, can we see the dog? I see you're, you're Yeah, that was what I was referring to. Yeah, the dog's been the star, mate. I mean, you've been good, but um, <laughs> the dog has been um, So look, you know, rather than the generalisms, rather than the memes, um, you're a founder, you're sitting in New Zealand, you, you, you kind of know. I'm not a founder. Actually, uh, oh, you're talking to the, the audience, yes, yeah, yeah, sure. sorry, yeah, it's always about me, uh, John, as you know, yeah, I know that, and, and and you know me, I'm I'm often happy to just correct you when you're right as well as when you're wrong, okay. Um, but you know, what, what what's the perennial stuff that you see, um, that you could leave this 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 group with, you know, regardless of what stage they're at in terms of you know, turning something that was an idea into, into something great, whether you're a but the one who came up with it or, or one of the key people actually delivering on the, on the promise and the vision? Uh, I mean, you know, obviously it depends on the idea. It depends also on your, on your own abilities, but I do think like um, the least, the, the, it's fine if you, you know, if you're not a coder and you have an idea, that's fine. But the, the less non-coding people that you have around early on, I think is probably a good sign. Um, especially if you're taking like investment money, they're not, the investors are not going to necessarily feel great about the fact that you have one or two people writing code and seven people, um, you know, doing strategy or, you know, whatever, like it's, 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 uh, and so, um, yeah, you know, I'm not a, a software developer, but I do pretty, uh, um, pretty strongly feel that like if I was going to start a company from scratch right now i'd want to i'd want to help build the vision one and it's not that hard i mean you know it's not easy but like there's web user interfaces there's mobile user interfaces like there's a lot to do that's not just writing back-end high availability distributed systems code right so um so i i always think that's a good indicator is just like if if everyone in the in the company early on is pretty predictive uh, sorry pretty productive at driving the product uh, through to um, availability, but it's also not like, not always the case. I think like if you have reputation, you can easily escape from that as well, right? If you're Mark Benioff and you just left Oracle and you're starting Salesforce, like no one cares if you're writing code or not. Um, but, but I think if you're coming from a place where you don't necessarily have that behind you, uh, then it's, then it's a, it's a good, good, good message. Great, great advice to wrap up. Really um, happy to be able to do this. Um, and thank you for your time. Um, thanks, community, for watching. I'm sure you've got uh, a bunch of stuff out of it. Tell your friends. This will be on demand in about 90 minutes. Um, and, uh, yeah, you uh, you have a good uh, holiday season, although I know your, your balance is out to building something great. And I hope that all goes well for you as well. And, and thanks again for joining us.
Thank you, John. It's always good to see you. Look forward to uh, picking you up off the streets of San Francisco again sometime soon. Yeah, I'm glad we didn't cover that in the in the main webinar. <laughs> you stay safe, mate. See you, mate. See you, everybody. Thanks. Bye.